And I'm so glad I didn't. I'm so glad I didn't. This week has been um, an incredible emotional roller coaster for me. Uh, last week, uh, we started this new series called When the Journey is Too Much, looking at mental health. And I shared with you very honestly and openly last week uh, about my own journey in mental health. And I shared with you about my anxiety and the, the crippling anxiety that I've had in my life and how much of my adult life has been defined to a degree by the reality of that anxiety. And I was very honest and open with you guys. And it, Sundays are always draining for me. Sundays are always emotionally draining. They're always physically draining, doing this over three services, and I love it. Um, but I was really drained at the end of last Sunday. Um, and, you know, emotions are funny things because they come out of the blues sometimes, you know. And as I left here at the end of our third service on Sunday, I felt completely naked and vulnerable. Um, and I, I, I felt like, you know, all the thoughts started to go through my mind, right? Like, why did I tell everybody about that, you know? And I began to second guess so much of it. And I began to feel bad about the whole day. And all of these emotions were there. And I literally had to go home and I had to find my wife and my daughter. And I had to get them. And I had to like talk with them for like a couple of hours just to be able to kind of find some stability again in the, in the sense of how I was feeling and to try to realize that the way I was feeling was not actually the reality of what was happening or the reality of what had happened. But I was still feeling all of this way. And I'm emotions, they're funny things, aren't they? And emotions can kind of sneak up on us sometimes and begin to define and kind of dominate us. Emotions are these, these things that it's hard sometimes for us to get a head around. And it's interesting because emotions at one and the same time are your greatest gift and also your greatest challenge. And your ability to understand your emotions to recognize them and to process them is probably the defining factor in your life for how you'll be able to understand your overall status of your mental wellness. I'm going to say that one more time because it's super important. Your emotions and your ability to see them, understand them, recognize them, process them in your life will be the determining factor that will actually end up shaping your own mental wellness. So many of the, uh, the mental health issues that we see in society are the result of people being overwhelmed by the reality of their emotions. And if humans are anything, we are emotional beings. In your lifetime, the average human being, and I'm going to assume that all of you are average here. You're much better than average, but I'm just going to say. An average human being over their lifetime experiences some 34,000 different emotions. On every single day, you're likely to experience six to 27 different emotional contexts. So we are definitely emotional beings. And I want to start today by kind of mapping out a couple of things for you that I think might be helpful for us to understand the way in which we are when it comes to the reality of our emotions and how those emotions are at work in us to try to define who we think that we are. Um, I'm going to draw for you a human being. You're welcome. I was at M Plus yesterday. If you haven't been to M Plus, a plug for M Plus. It's an amazing museum. I still reckon that is better than a lot of what I saw <laughs> yesterday. 
Now, here's what happens for us as human beings. We have three primary contexts within which our emotions are at work. The first is what's called the psychological, okay? And the psychological, psychological is our thinking. Oh, man, I cannot write. Our thinking, our thoughts, and this is largely understood of or spoken about in terms of the head or the brain, right? Now, also, there is this thing that flows from the heart, which is our emotional state. So as well as a psychological state, every human being also has this emotional state. That is our feelings and our affections, our passions, those sort of things. And that's commonly considered and thought of in the area of our heart. And then finally, there's a third context that all humans have, and I'm going to draw this from the shin, but I'm actually meaning the foot, okay? And this is the physical context. And the physical context is our behavior, and it is our action. And this is largely represented, like I say, by the feet, or you might even want to say the hands, something like that, but it's the things that we do. Okay, here's what I want you to see. These three things are always at work shaping how you feel, shaping the way in which you experience emotions. And the important thing to know is that each one of these impacts the other. This is an incredibly complex thing. In other words, the way you feel is not just down to how you think. The way you act is not just down to the way in which you are emoting at that particular moment in time. No, this is an incredibly complex system. So your psychology impacts your emotions and your behavior. Your behavior impacts your emotions and your psychology. Your emotions impact your psychology and your behavior. And all of this is at, at work in you all of the time. It's an it's a absolute complex system that is at work inside every human being. Now... Here's the critical thing you need to know about this system. This system, at all times, is trying to define for you who you think you are. In other words, the way in which you feel, the way in which you think, the way in which you behave, is always trying to define how you think you are. I call this the will of our emotions. And I want you to notice that this is trying to say, this is who I think that I am. Or this is who I feel that I am in any particular given moment of time. Now notice I'm choosing my words specifically because this stuff is trying to tell you what you think that you are rather than actually who you are. Come on church. It's trying to define what you feel like you are, rather than perhaps who you actually are, because those two things can be different. And so we need to recognize that sometimes this complex system that's in work in our lives is trying to conform us, it's trying to tell us something, and ultimately it's trying to shape us to its will. Now, because this is a reality for all of us, Scripture has a lot to say about this complex system. 
Scripture invites us into a fresh journey of understanding actually who we are, not driven by the way we think, not necessarily driven by our emotions, and not necessarily driven by our actions, but who we are driven by how God sees us, by God's determination, by His will, by His Spirit, all shaping the person that we truly are. Are you with me still? So we need to be really understanding about what the emotions are all about, not just from a physiological reality, but from a scripture reality. So the first thing I want to do is actually give you a bit of a theology of emotions. I don't know if you've ever sat in church ever and heard a theology of emotions, but I want to do this because I want you to begin to really understand what it is that's at work in you. Here's the first thing. God is in and of himself an emotional being. God is actually an emotional being. Now, I know on the surface that might sound like, yeah, okay, cool. But here's what we so often think. We so often think it's us who are emotional, and we've put these emotions onto God so we can better understand him. But you need to understand that God is not made in our image. We're made in his. So by saying that God is an emotional being, we're actually saying something fundamentally important. We're saying that emotions are not primarily, in the first instant, a human characteristic. They're actually a divine characteristic. And if that is true, then our ability as humans to experience emotions to some degree helps to connect us to the divine. Are you guys here? Now, because God is an emotive being, and the Bible will explain this to us, we, we see emotions that God has. He has love. He has joy. He has anger. He has frustration. He has compassion. He has all these things that we see in the scripture. Because God is emotive in that way, here's the second thing. Therefore, our emotions are inherently a good thing. Emotions are inherently a good thing. And, and again, I think so often we, we think as Christians, oh, I need to just suppress my emotions. But actually, that's not true. Emotions are inherently a good thing. And because we are made in the image of God, humans are also emotional beings. And we're emotional beings because we're made in his image. He's emotional. So the way he's created us is to express something of the divine inside of us. So we also are emotional. And our emotions are a beautiful reflection of who God is in us. Are you with me still? So it's okay to be emotional. I want to just lift that one off you. You can come to the vine and you can be emotional. <laughs> Let me tell you why that's important. I was at a conference just about a month ago, speaking at a young adults conference here in Hong Kong. And uh, before I was going to speak, uh, we had this like, little dinner time. And I was like, sitting on this table with a bunch of people who didn't know who I was, which was awesome. And they were talking about the next speaker that was coming up. And one of the young adults on the table goes, oh, he's from the vine. That's the emotional church. <laughs> that was one of those times in life where I had to hold in the thing that I was thinking in my head. But here's how I reflected afterwards. I'm like, that's awesome. That means the vine is just like God. So you can come here and be emotional. And we will say, praise the Lord. Welcome to the vine. It is good to have you with us. If you want to be unemotional, there are other churches that you can go to. Where you cannot be like God. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't say that. Anyway. But we also need to be really careful. And this is actually a really important part of the theology of emotions. 
We have to recognize that our emotions are deeply impacted by humanity's fall into sin. And because our emotions are deeply impacted by humanity's fall into sin, we have to realize that our emotions are not always incredibly trustworthy. You see, this is the thing that differentiates humanity and the divine. See, God's emotions are not complicated by sin. God's emotions are always good. They are always holy. They are always just. They are always right. But humanity, our emotions are not always good. They're not always holy. They're not always just. And I'm going to be honest, they're not always right. And because of that reality, we have to understand a few things about how God has designed emotions so that we can align ourselves to what the good reality is of these emotions that help to connect us to the divine and what are the bad parts of these emotions that are now sometimes at work in us to try to get us to think, to feel, and to act in a way that is not glorifying to God. Here's a couple of things. God has designed emotions to be gauges, but not guides. Emotions are created by God to gauge us, to help us to gauge society and the world around us. In other words, to report to us, but not direct us. But the world right now will tell you, hey, if it feels good to you, just do it. You know? Like, hey, if, if this feels right to you, don't let anybody else tell you what's right or wrong. If this feels good to you, then you should do it. Likewise, if you don't feel like doing it this, today, I know you made a commitment. I know you gave your word. But hey, if you don't feel like doing it, don't do it at all. It's fine. So, so the world has this very much this thought that our feelings should drive us. But God has created and designed feelings not to be our leader, but to be something that helps us to gauge society and environments around us. Are you, are you, are you with me still? Here, here's the second thing. Our emotions are feelings. They're not facts. Your emotions are feelings, but they're not facts. What that means is your emotions are not always truth. So in other words, the way you feel is not always reality. This was my experience when I left here last Sunday, and I felt all these things that I felt, and in a way, understandable to feel those things, but I needed to get home and sit with my wife and my daughter for a while for me to understand that the way I was feeling was not fact. See, our feelings will try to often try to dominate that to us. Now, sometimes feelings are factual, and this is the tricky things with your feelings. If you're standing in a road and a bus is driving towards you and you feel afraid for your life, that's a true feeling. That's a factual feeling, and that is speaking truth. But at the same time, a lot of the times, our emotions are trying to tell us things that are not actually the way that God sees us or sees that entity or that thing that we're reacting to. Are you, are you, are you still with me? Here's the final thing. In Christ, we can have God-honoring, God-centered, and God-glorifying emotions. In other words, even though our emotions are tainted by sin, in God, we can actually find those things redeemed within us. In Christ, we can find that redemption of our sin. Here's the way that happens. At the vine here, we have a, a, a mission statement, a vision statement called Growing Big People. What that basically means is if you come to the vine, we want you to grow in Christ Jesus. We want you to grow to become more and more like Christ Jesus. And if Christ Jesus and Christ-likeness is actually the goal of his followers, then that means Christ-likeness not just in thought and in action, but in our emotions as well. My great desire for you is that you would have Christ-likeness 
like emotions in your life. Because those emotions are good. And they'll align you to the beauty and the power of God for you. But those Christ-like emotions come in us as we learn to journey in our Christ-likeness in other ways. It's not just about trying to be like Jesus in how we think. Try to be like Jesus in how we act. We also want to try to be like Jesus in the way we emote things. Jesus had right emotions about everything that he encountered as a human in this world. And there's much we can learn from the ministry of Jesus for how we can also hold right emotions. There were times where Jesus actually kept his mouth shut when he wanted to say something. There were times where Jesus realized that that an emotion he was feeling he shouldn't act upon. Likewise, the Bible is filled with stories who act upon their emotions and get themselves into really big trouble. But the good news for us is that in Christ, we can be redeemed in all of these areas of our emotions. Is that helpful? That's a bit of a theology of emotion. Now, here's why I've given you that today. It's because of this. The thing that we have been created for as human beings is the two great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two things that God has placed upon the call of humanity. If we do those two things well, we spread the gospel. And here's the reality. You cannot do those two things unless you are an emotional person. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So in order for us to fulfill those great commandments, God has given you the thing that you need to be able to do it. His love, his peace, his guidance, his spirit, his emotions inside of you so that you can fulfill that love and fulfill that love and begin to walk out the gospel. So here's the critical thing. When we hold our emotions in right balance and in right sort of judgment, then we're able to actually have the greatest tool we need to work the gospel out in a broken and hurting world. We get to, and we are enabled by God, to care for the things that he cares about. So emotions are good. Emotions are important. Emotions are designed to help you to fulfill the great commission and the great calling that God has placed on your life. But we need to make sure we bring these emotions, as I say here, in right balance and right perspective. And that's the great question that I think sits over us when it comes to mental health and all of our ongoing mental wellness. How do we bring our emotions How do we bring all of this stuff right here into right balance and right perspective? Because if we can learn to do that, then I think we can become alive for the gospel in our city like never before. Is this okay? So how do we do it? How do we get right balance and right perspective in the world of our emotions? Well, to unpack that, and we're going to unpack that over the next three weeks, I want to take you over these three weeks to the story of Elijah. Elijah is found in 1 Kings chapter 17 to about 25. And in these chapters, we get to see Elijah be called by God in a critical moment of Israel's history. Israel at this time is led by King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And they have done a terrible thing. They have brought the worship of um, Baal and Asherah into the consciousness of Israel. Not just the consciousness, but actually the religious life of Israel. And because of that, there's this whole situation where there's all this worship happening of all these gods called Baal and Asherah. And in fact, what King Ahab and Jezebel do is they raise up 850 prophets to praise and to worship these gods to try to get all of Israel to follow these gods. And by the time that God comes and calls Elijah, the whole of Israel is swept up in this idol worship. And rather than 850 prophets, God calls one. 
He says to Elijah, I want you to go to the king and his wife, and I want you to tell them to turn from their dark and wicked ways and to start worshiping Yahweh. And if you can do that, then everything will change. We'll get a revival back in Israel. And and Elijah is passionate about this revival. There's everything inside of him that wants to see that revival happen. But time and time again, King Ahab refuses to listen to him, turns his back on him, doesn't listen to him, casts him out. And Elijah has a terrible, frustrating ministry with this burning desire given by God through the Spirit for revival and always seeing walls and doors shut in his face, seeing himself coming up against the worst of the worst, and he's completely frustrated, and he's getting really angry about all this. And many times he comes to God and he's like, why? Why did you choose me? Why are you asking me to do this? There's these huge emotions inside of Elijah because he feels like he's a failure the whole time. Until this one moment where he goes up a mountain and he calls the 850 prophets of Baal and Esherah. And they, they build an altar on top of this mountain. I call this the mountain showdown. And he says, to, he, Elijah pours all this water on the altar. And then he says to the 850 prophets, he says, make this altar come alive. Cool down fire from your gods in heaven to set this altar alight. And they do, they, they kind of dance around and they do all their kind of incanting and their prayers and nothing happens at all, of course. And then Elijah does a simple prayer and God, Yahweh, brings fire from heaven, burns the altar, all the altar comes aflame and the Bible tells us this amazing thing happens. Everybody in Israel starts praising Yahweh again. Everybody starts singing Yahweh's praises, starts singing to the Lord. And this is the moment where Elijah sees victory, the victory he's been longing for for so long, fulfilling the calling that God had given on his life. He's so excited. He takes the 850 false prophets and they're slaughtered in that moment. And then he's so filled with adrenaline, so filled with emotion that he runs down the mountain faster than the chariots are able to be driven by horses. I mean, this is a guy who's so pumped up, so emotional, so excited. Finally, all those long, hard years of uh, slaving away has paid off and revival can now come to Ahab, to Jezebel and Israel. And then this happens. Let me read this to you from 1 Kings 19 verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Jezebel refuses to bow down. In fact, she even says here, she says, May the gods, plural, still deal with me. She's still worshipping Baal and Esherah. And so, by implication, is Ahab. And suddenly, Elijah is faced not with what he thought was revival breaking out on the land. He's now faced with the reality that it's still idol worship. He's suddenly hit with the worst sense of failure that he's ever felt before. I mean, you cannot go from hero of the nation to enemy of the state faster than that. And he's told that a hit has been put out on him, that there are people coming to kill him. And he is completely turned upside down by this. I wonder if you can get a sense of the emotional journey that Elijah is on here. From this moment of great ecstasy on the top of the mountain to now knowing that the king and his wife want him dead. I want you to see what he does next. 
Verse 3, Elijah was afraid. There's the emotion. And he ran for his life. He was, uh, when he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey further into the desert, he came upon a broom tree. And on this tree, he decides that he would sit down under it. And notice what it says here. He sits down under it and he prays that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. I wonder if anybody else has prayed that prayer here. I have had enough, Lord. I'm done with this. This is over. I don't want anything else. I am fully at my limit. I'm completely burnt out. This is basically Elijah saying to God, I'm emotionally exhausted. He says, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree, and he fell asleep. Now, I would like to lie down there and fall asleep, because I'm pretty tired too, but I will get up and finish my sermon. I want you to see what happens here because this is what's really critical in this whole process. What Elijah goes through is the absolute, absolute spiral of all of this. First of all, he feels fear. There's an emotion that's happening there which causes a behavioral action which is to run and to flee. As he runs and flees, his psychology, his thinking is, I have to be alone. I have to get alone. I'm all alone. And therefore, he wants to die. His emotion is, just kill me, God. He's having suicidal ideation. Not that he's going to take his own life. He's asking God to take his life for him. And all of this is spiraling out of control. And what it's telling him is you're a failure. What it's telling him is you should just go. You're done. It is all over. What it's telling him, the person that he's now thinking he is, is an absolute failure. I got it all wrong. Elijah does two things here that I think all of us do when we're feeling overwhelmed emotionally. And these two things cause a lot of emotional exhaustion in our life. I want to tell you about these two things. I think if you can understand these two, it might set you free a little bit in how you manage your emotions as well. Here's the two mistakes Elijah makes in this moment. The first is that he's trusting his feelings over fact. He's trusting his feelings here over fact. Because here's the fact The fact is God's just done one of the most powerful things that God does throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Maybe only the parting of the Red Sea is even greater than this moment right here, where God comes and takes 850 prophets and shows them up and brings fire down in such a powerful and an amazing way. I mean, that has just happened. Here's fact number two. The people have turned to worship Yahweh. The revival that he wants has actually begun. That revival is going to continue. In fact, this is actually an inflection point for Israel. And the rest of the narrative here tells us the story of how Israel comes back to the worship of Yahweh. It starts in this moment. That's a fact. Here's another fact. If God can send fire down on a mountain, God can stop people from killing Elijah. So all these facts are there before him, but he's not seeing any of the facts. He's just feeling these incredible emotions which are telling him far more who he is than the reality of what God is doing around him. How many of us in this room, when we're overwhelmed with our emotions, like me on Sunday evening last week, allow those emotions so much to tell us what the reality is rather than actually how God sees what's happening? Are you with me still? Here's the second mistake he makes. The second mistake he makes is he's comparing himself to others. 
Comparison is one of the most dangerous things that we can ever do. Because either it will make us feel terrible about ourselves, or it will so puff up our pride that we become actually arrogant. And I want you to show, he says here something really important. He says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He's comparing himself to his ancestors. When when Elijah was called into ministry, he actually said that I I don't want to be like my ancestors who weren't able to turn God's people back to revival with him. I'm going to be different from them. And now he's sitting under this tree feeling completely depressed and burnt out. And he's saying, if I compare myself to my ancestors, I'm no better than them. I haven't done any better. I haven't succeeded anymore. I'm still as terrible. I'm as bad. I haven't helped at all. This is all bad. He's comparing himself. And I want you to know this. When you compare yourself, Comparison is perhaps the greatest tool that the enemy will use to keep you locked in a painful emotional prison. Come on, church, this is so true. Your comparison will be one of the great tools the enemy will use to keep you locked in an emotional prison. And God's about to change all of this now for Elijah. I want to show you the three things that God does. Let me read on. It says this. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and laid, them, laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. God does three things here for Elijah that I believe are the three things he can do for all of us when we're overwhelmed emotionally. Here's the first thing he does. He comes in form of an angel and he physically touches Elijah. He didn't need to do that. He could have just showed up in angel form and stood over him and said some nice words to him. But he actually touches him. In fact, it says that he does it twice. He touches him twice. Why? Because this is God coming and immediately addressing the psychological turmoil that is going on here for Elijah. Because Elijah thinks that he should be alone. Elijah feels like he's alone. And so when God comes and touches him, it changes something in his physiology, in his thinking, in the psychological way that he thinks. And God's saying this touch communicates to you that you're not alone. This touch communicates that the thing that you're thinking, I'm all alone, is not fact. Let me show you physically that I'm right here with you. Are you with me? So the first thing God does for any of us when we're in an emotional turmoil place is he comes up to us and says, I'm with you. I'm not distant. I'm here with you. I touch you. I'm physically here with you. My spirit is here with you. We are present together. You are not alone. The greatest enemy and the lie that the enemy would try to tell you emotionally is that you're all cut off. You're all alone. There's no help for you. And God comes and he touches Elijah. And I believe if you want it, he will come and touch you to let you know that you're not alone. The second thing he does is he feeds him. He gives him food and drink. In other words, he provides for the sustenance of his body. This is God coming and ministering to the physical elements of what's in turmoil in his life. And you need to understand, when you're in a bad emotional place, 
Your body is also in a bad place. And there's chemicals and things in your body that are making you feel even worse. And again, feelings aren't fact. They're reality. And these things in our body can do that. And God understands that. And he comes and says, the first thing I need to do, let you know that you're not alone because I want to change your thinking. But now I'm going to come and feed and drink and give your body sustenance because that will get you stability for you to be able to then begin to deal with your emotions. You need to know that if you're ever dealing with depression, psychologists will tell you that 85% of the journey towards healing for somebody who's depressed is to begin to deal with the physical side of things. Exercise, nutrition, food at the right times, bringing bring that body back to life is a major step forward in all of the other healing. And God shows up and says to Elijah, I've got you and I'm going to physically now work with you. Yeah. But then he says this, most important. He says, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Notice this. He says, the journey is too much for you. This is God now dealing with the emotional part, perhaps the most central bit of all. And I want you to hear what God says. He says, the journey is too much for you. What he's not saying is this, man, the journey's too much for you. You suck. I wish you were stronger. I wish you were better. Like, man, this journey's, this journey's too much for you, you know? It's not like that at all. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, man, I get it. The journey's too much. The journey's hard. But I'm here. This is like what I shared last week when I talked about what my counselor said to me in the counseling room when he said, Andrew, it's okay to not be okay. God shows up and he says to Elijah, I get it. I see it, man. Oh, it's been a long, hard road. I understand that you're feeling disappointed. I get it. I feel it too. Man, this journey is overwhelming, isn't it, Elijah? And this is so critical because God's doing something that is so important here. He's actually doing something that will enable Elijah to redefine his relationships with his emotions. I want, I want, I want, to, I want you to see what he's doing here. By God coming and saying, hey, it's okay to not be okay, Elijah. It's okay to feel what you're feeling. What he's actually doing is he's trying to create space between the person of Elijah and what all of this complex system is trying to tell him. God's creating a space here, and in this space, it's going to enable Elijah to take stock of everything that's happening and begin to redefine his relationships with this complex system that's at work. Hey, basically, he said, here's what's going to happen for Elijah. He's going to go from, oh man, I'm feeling this way, and it sucks, and I want to die. He's now going to go, I'm feeling this way, and it sucks, but God feels it with me. And he validates the reality of that emotion in my life. And because he does, I have space now to redefine my relationship with those emotions. Are you with me, church? Come on, this is so important. That God would say, hey, I feel what you're feeling. I get it and I touch you and I feed you. I provide for you, but I also am here and I feel what you feel, which enables Elijah to go, there's some distance between what all this is trying to say to me and how I can now observe my thinking, observe my emotions, observe the physical things that are happening in me and realize that what they're trying to tell me is not the wholeness of truth. 
that there's now space for something else to be there. Psychologists call this space the observing self. It's the self being able to observe the things that are happening inside of the person. But I like more the way that the Bible talks about it. Let me show you one quick verse, and we're going to pull things up around about here. But let me go to Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 2. It says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is such a powerful verse. Paul's saying, hey, you want to get back to where things are supposed to be? You want to actually begin to see your emotions as they should? You want to be able to think in the right ways? Well, here, you don't have to be conformed anymore to the patterns of the world, the will of your emotions. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you can then discern, and he says this, you can discern what God's perfect will is. I'm going to write the will of God. His good, pleasing, and perfect will, which brings your thinking, your emotions and your body, your behavior, and your actions all into alignment in Christ-likeness. Isn't that great? If only we could realize that all of this is trying to define us, but actually it's the work of the Spirit of God that creates a space in us. Not that all of this is evil. Remember, emotions are given by God, that they are actually part of His characteristic, that it's not wrong for us to feel. It's not that we suppress all this stuff. It's just that we gain a fresh perspective on it through the lens of the will of God, which defines our thinking, defines our emotions, and defines our physicality, so we can then be more like Christ in the world. And the Bible says the, the ability, the thing that creates this space and it helps us to understand and discern God's will is the Spirit of God. The Spirit which is already inside of you works to align you to the will of God so you can redeem your psychology, your emotions, and your physical self so that this comes in alignment with this. That's the Bible's answer for how we then journey in our emotions. The Spirit of God at work in you. And that Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And the ultimate one, what's the last one? Self-control. It amazes me that God has placed inside of us the very thing that can bring all of this under self-mastering control. Not that all of this is evil and wrong and bad. There is so much good that happens inside of this. But if this determines and defines this, then we've got ourselves out of whack. And emotional exhaustion is possible. But when this enables this to come under self-control, well, then we're able to live as Christ has always caused us to May I encourage you to redefine your relationship with your emotions so that you can bring all of it under control. Know that God touches you, provides for you, and he speaks to you and says, I know what you're going through. I'm here with you. But together, we can do this right. That's my hope for you, that you would know a God who sets you right. Can we pray? 
Maybe you could just open your hands where you're sat. Father, I just thank you so much for the people in this room. And I thank you so much for this journey that you've invited us into now. And we thank you for our emotions. What a gift they are. We thank you that our emotions are reflected and found and sourced by you. You are an emotive being. Lord, we recognize that in our emotions and in our sin, these things cannot so often attempt to define us. And we know, every single one of us in this room, that we've made really poor decisions in our lives based on our emotions. And Father, we want to come now and just bring that to you. And Father, we thank you that there is another way. That you come to Elijah and you touch him to say you're not alone. Even though your feelings and your emotions are saying you're cut off, you are not alone. And I want to say that over some of you in this room because this is really important. Some of you feel alone all the time. And that feeling is not fact. And God wants to come and touch you today like he did Elijah and say you're not alone. God wants to provide for you sustenance and strength for the journey ahead. And God speaks over you. Sometimes the journey is too much, but it's okay. I'm with you. We're going to do this together. I feel you. And I've got you. If you'd like the Holy Spirit to transform your mind to renew your mind so that you would be able to discern God's will, so that you'd be able to see your life with a fresh perspective. Can I just invite you just to open your hands now? You don't have to do that, but that's, if you want to respond to this message now, if you feel like this is for you, you know your emotions have been defining you more than God's will, more than God's spirit, more than the fruit of that spirit that's at work in you. Just open your hands. And I want to pray that the Spirit of God would come now and minister. I want to pray that you would receive His touch, His words, His love. Elijah at the end of his rope. Kill me, Lord. Take me. This is just too much. Maybe you're sitting here today and that's your feeling too. 